Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Before we start, as always, I would like to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com, and there are lots of resources there waiting for you, including a free copy of my Wealth 1.0 book called Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. I call it the uh, 1.0 because it's really sort of a very basic place to start with cash flow investing and real assets and that sort of thing. As many of you long-term listeners know, we've moved on to what we call Wealth 2.0, which has a lot more to do with velocity of money you know, and mass and leverage and all these fun things we talk about, which hopefully maybe we'll, we'll present again at a, a meeting in the near future. Anyway, this today is the second of multiple Ask Buck shows because we have a bunch of questions sitting around from episode 200 and thereafter. So when we come back, we're going to get to it and start with uh, the second uh, in the series of Ask Buck shows. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Let's get to it. First question is a written question from John Cho. John writes, what is the outlook for conservation easements for tax year 2020? Okay. So let's back up a little bit. John is referring to something called a conservation easement. So let me explain what that is. So and let me just say that I'm going to simplify this for ease because it 
tends to be a little bit more complicated than this, but for explanation purposes, say we have a piece of land that we acquired for $100,000, right? And say we were planning to develop it, you know? Uh, and again, $100,000, you know, in reality, these are multi-million dollar acquisitions. But say say we paid $100,000 for this piece of land and we decided, you know what, we're going to develop something on this. Um, and then we realize, hey, you know what, there is a mine on this property and it's full of valuable stuff that we can mine and sell for a whole bunch of money. So then we decide, well, should we do that? Should we mine that thing and sell all this or should we just you know, conserve this land and this mine, which one should we do? Well, which one is the highest and best use for the property? In other words, where can we make the most money? So an independent valuation can be done on the land and the mine. And you can have somebody say, well, you know, you've got this mine's output. It's worth a certain amount. Um, And if we do that, we have a certain amount of money, of value that this mine has. So if we forego mining by calling this a conservation easement, we can deduct the theoretical value of the mine's output instead of just the value of the land that we paid for it. So as you can imagine, this could be a very profitable situation. You know, so for example... You might have paid $100,000 for the land, but the mine might be worth, you know, or valued at $500,000 because of the output. So if you don't develop, potentially you could take a deduction of not the $100,000 that you develop, you know, that you actually purchased the land for, but $500,000, which is the value. As you can imagine, that is pretty you know, significant when it comes to tax savings. So the issue is, though, that this is, um, you know, it's a way you can do with these and what have been done with these. They were designed for farmers primarily, right? But what's happened is that there are large syndications of these things where you can put s- certain amounts of money in, et cetera, and then you vote, you know, on the development if you want to develop it or conserve it. And if you want to conserve it, you get these kinds of deductions. Sometimes, you know, like I said, five to one, et cetera. Now, as you can imagine, the IRS absolutely hates these things, right? So Congress makes the laws, right? Congress makes laws, and this is legal. There's nothing illegal about this. But the IRS, as you can imagine, looks at people making five to one deductions. It's like, we hate these things. And they have hated these things for years and years and years and years, yet they have continued and people have taken, you know, taken those deductions. Now, John brings up the issue of, you know, legislation this year. Every year there's talk about legislation and it just seems like it never quite gets, you know, changed. And, and, you know, there's clarity so that the IRS stops like, you know, you know, uh, threatening people. Right. Um, You know, to date, Basically, the only thing that they've been able to do is if, like, you find an operator who doesn't do it properly, they can go back and disallow those. So if you found an operator who does does things properly and doesn't get caught with technical footfalls, you've been in pretty good shape. So this year, though, I will say that that given the tax revenue hit that, uh, that the government has taken, that there probably will be some resolution on this issue this year, according to my sources. 
uh, including lobbyists on Capitol Hill. And the most likely outcome, according to them, not to me, will be that there will be limitations on valuation. Sometimes right now, you know, typically sometimes people are seeing four or five acts of the amount that they're investing. And most people tend to think that those, um, that these will get limited to maybe two, two and a half. You do the math in there to see if it's still worth it or not. But most people tend to think that any retroactive laws applying to people who've invested in these things is highly unlikely. But, you know, anything is possible. So I'm not going to tell you it's not possible. I will tell you that I've participated in these things. So it's not like I'm telling you to, you know, that, that this is something that I would never do because I have. But part of the problem with, um, easements right now with conservation easements right now frankly is that we are in limbo and you know we need congress to make some decisions to let people do something that is you know ultimately lawful or not right so they need to clarify the law and to get the irs off of everybody's back so like everything else whether or not you participate has to be a calculated decision you know, I talked to one guy who said, you know, any th- sort of, again, a lobbyist who said that, you know, the law could change, but the chances of there being any retroactive stuff would be fought tooth and nail uh, by uh, any conservatives uh, and, and Republicans out there. So that that would be a highly unlikely scenario of anything happening that would affect people who've already invested. So his take was, go ahead and invest now before any laws are changed so that you get grandfathered in. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. But again, we do some updates on this type of stuff within our accredited uh, investor club. So if you're involved with that, you know, stay tuned and I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. All right. Next question is an audio question from uh, Terry. And here it is. Hey, Buck. My name is Terry and I own an e-commerce business. I recently stumbled upon the Wealth Formula podcast on YouTube and love your content. So here's an income shifting strategy I want to run by you. I have a uh, cash balance defined benefit plan, which I've been maxing out with pre-tax contributions around $150,000 per year for a few years now. At some point, I may want to convert the defined benefit IRA into a Roth IRA and was thinking about pairing up a conservation easement investment to offset the Roth conversion taxes. What do you think about this idea? Thanks, Terry. Well, as you can probably tell, I planted that particular question from Terry to follow John's question so we didn't have to re-explain what uh, conservation easements are. But, you know, uh, listen, the math on the strategy you talk about, Terry, uh, in fact, works. And I will tell you that multiple people in our community have used you know, easements exactly for the strategy that you're talking about. And again, the only caveat is, of course, the controversy. And you have to figure out whether or not uh, you want to get involved in these types of things. I have, again, invested in conservation easements multiple years. They've even been audited in years where I've had them. And since there was nothing clearly wrong with what I was doing and it was not lawful or against anything, they've not been an issue. But um, again, I can't advise you to do it or not. Um, I'm just saying beware of the issues. Uh, What you're talking about has been done by several people in our accredited investor group. I know Uh, if you want to 
you know, talk talk to some of those people. You may want to join Wealth Formula Network and and talk about it some more. Um, okay, let's go to the next recorded question. This is an old one. You can tell by uh, by what he says at the end. Hey, Doctor Buck, this is Samir Shah. I got your information from another investor group I'm part of, and got a chance to hear some of your podcasts. Period. I'm an ophthalmologist, high wage earner. I love your strategies or at least the thoughts that you put behind the ideas of how to save from taxes and grow wealth. I just wanted to touch base about a couple of different things that my accountant is recommending right now, just to get your perspective on it, because I'm sure you're also a very high wage earner that had to go through this before as well. Um, The first is captive insurance companies. And if you have providers or referral sources or whatnot that I could interview at least, and compare them to the one my accountant recommended along with um, conservation easement opportunities, which was another one that one of my high-earning plastic surgeon friends also recommended. I'd love to talk to you. Um, Thanks so much and hope to hear from you soon. Merry Christmas. Well, of course, since it's now May, somehow uh, that question got lost, but Merry Christmas to you too. Listen, uh, we've hit the conservation easement um, question pretty hard already. The big thing is there, if you're going to do it, make sure you do it with somebody who dots their I's, crosses their T's, knows the law, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, captive insurance. Okay. What is that? Well, let's back up. The law provides that people are allowed to have their own insurance companies. Uh, And why, you might ask, would you want your own insurance company? Well, think about all of the stuff for which you and I have been paying insurance on through our businesses or practices for years and years, but have never filed anything, right? Think of all that money. It's a lot of money. I mean, seriously, it's a lot of money. What happens to that money? Well, when you pay it from your business or practice, of course, it is a tax deduction for you. But for the insurance company, it is a premium on which it is not taxed. Uh, It goes into a pool of money that sits there in case there are claims. Now, insurance companies can, of course, use excess money to buy assets like real estate And that's why much of the country's most expensive real estate is held by insurance companies and why insurance companies, as we mentioned in the context of wealth formula banking, are so darn stable. So what if you had an insurance company yourself, right? And you pooled that risk with other people who had their own businesses and practices and so that you could mitigate the risk you know, by the law of large numbers yourself, right? What would that look like? Well, your premiums for your business, your primary business would then be deducted from your, you know, from your income, from your revenue. And when that income went into your insurance company as a premium, well, it's not income, right? That's a premium. So the excess over time could then be used the way other insurance company uses that money. Maybe it could be given out as dividends to shareholders, you, 
which would be then taxed at capital gains, long-term capital gains instead of ordinary income tax rates. Would that benefit you? Maybe, right? Or maybe excess income uh, over time could be used to acquire assets the same way insurance companies do it, right? In other words, maybe loans or the acquisition of, of, of real estate, et cetera. Bottom line is that this is the concept uh, called captive insurance. And it, along with conservation easements, is used frequently by wealthy business owners or people with practices, uh, medical practices, et cetera, to reduce exposure, right? Because it is an insurance company and there are things that you may want to insure or maybe do reinsurance to complement your current insurance. And finally, because you do this, you have the additional benefit of potentially huge savings in taxes. And if you look at this and you think, well, gosh, how is that legal? Well, it is legal. The law in Congress created says that this is legal. But guess who hates it again? Yep, the IRS. Because people, you know, end up paying a lot less taxes. So, again, this is an issue that is um, scrutinized. I would say probably maybe less so than conservation easements, but you got to do this right, right? Uh, you have to make sure that you are with a company that does this in a manner that it's real risk. It's a real insurance company. The trouble comes with a lot of these uh, captive insurance companies when, you know, they kind of don't really even pretend to be insurance companies, right? They discourage any claims, et cetera. But if you've got a really big captive with lots of money pooled, you know, you can have losses and still really not lose much of your money, right? So you can really come out ahead. So it is really important that you do this right. And again, I'll tell you that there is scrutiny here. And I have had a captive in the past, by the way. In fact, with regard to the scrutiny, both conservation easements and captive insurance companies, as we've talked about, are on the list of you know IRS listed transactions. In other words, they want you to admit you're using these strategies that they could be tax um, shelters, right? Does that make it illegal? No, it does not. It's a scare tactic. Uh, in fact, this year, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case on captives that challenges the idea that the IRS can even put a label on anything as a listed transaction, um, you know, because the question is, do they have an, the authority to do that? Or is that lawful for them to do that? And again, for me, captives are one of those things that I know for this, for, for captives in particular, when they are done properly, I mean, I will tell you that a lot of people had business interruption insurance through captives that they couldn't get through their primary providers, and it and in many cases saved their businesses. Um, as for companies, again, I'm not going to give you advice. Uh, if you are an investor club, though, you did see us do a webinar recently uh, with uh, Oxford. Um, I really do think they are above board. They are the biggest company in this space, so they're huge risk pools. Um, and if I were going to do this myself again, I would trust them. Uh, again, they are the biggest provider, largest pool, and they function like an insurance company should. Uh, you can look them up, or if you'd like, you can certainly just connect. You can just shoot me an email, 
bucketwealthformula.com, and I will make you an introduction to Eddie Wanderer, who I know over there. Okay, so next question is from Cornell, and this is an audio question. Hi, Buck. I've been investing in syndications real estate for the last bunch of years, and I have this one big question and concern, and yet I never really hear anyone talking about it. So um, here it goes, and I'll phrase it just as an example uh, to hopefully make it easier to understand. So if I buy a multifamily building, um, let's just say for a million bucks, and we do front load depreciation, a cost segregation study, and let's say we can take 300000 depreciation right away. And then we sell that building in five years, um, we may have to do 200000 of depreciation recapture, uh, but instead of paying tax on that $200,000 of depreciation recapture, we go ahead and buy another building. Uh, it's the same thing, take another 300,000 depreciation and, and use, um, use 200,000 of that to offset the tax liability we had from the first building. And we keep doing that uh, by buying more and more buildings, we're kicking the can down the road of that tax liability. But to me, it just seems like it's a snowball effect that's going to start getting bigger and bigger and you have to keep buying more and more and more at an accelerated rate uh, just to keep up with your tax lives to avoid having to pay that tax liability and kicking the can down the road. Um, so I look at that and say instead of defer, defer, defer and then die, I mean there'd be a point when I'm in my 70s and 80s, I don't want to be buying real estate and yet I can't afford not to because of the tax liability. So I just wonder how that plays out or what I'm missing or if I'm not thinking about that right. Thank you. Cornell, great question. And what you have described is what we have referred to in this show several times now as the golden hamster wheel. Uh, to summarize what you said, you can essentially defer taxes in perpetuity by continuing to reinvest in real estate to offset long-term capital gains and depreciation recapture, okay? Every time you invest in a new property, you replenish your reserve of losses so that future profits and recapture can be offset, right? So then you've created this wheel and where you're constantly, you know, buying, divesting, and then using, you know, losses from other acquisitions to offset those gains, et cetera. It's a hamster wheel, but it's a beautiful hamster wheel, and that's why we call it the golden hamster wheel. So the question is that you have is, how do you get off the hamster wheel? Well, let's, let's review something first, okay? The classic paradigm for the real estate investor is to buy a property and then eventually sell it, and then the profits in depreciation recapture can be avoided by a like exchange called a 1031 exchange, right? Eventually, the investor gets bored of managing assets, has built up a huge amount of money, and does a final 1031 into some triple net assets that are hyper, hyper stable, but have no, but have very little management responsibility. So maybe they buy triple net Walgreens, right? For 30-year leases that might you know, be highly stable and produce maybe 5% returns, but the accumulation of equity over the years 
allows that person to take these relatively modest returns and turn them into a huge amount of cash flow that they can live on forever. And when that real estate investor dies and leaves those Walgreens to his or her heirs, all of that depreciation washes away and you start over. That's what we call buy, borrow, and die, right? What you do is when what happens when you die is your heirs get those uh, assets uh, and they don't have to deal with the recapture because the cost basis is then reset. You know, your heirs don't have to pay any recapture on the depreciation you have accumulated over the years. Okay. So um, here's the thing uh, bonus depreciation. Because limited partnerships, typically you cannot, with major operators, you're not going to be able to get involved with a 1031 exchange if you're a limited partner in a syndication. But the good news is now there's this bonus depreciation that sort of lets you do the same thing as a limited partner um, and can be as powerful as a 1031 exchange in many ways. So let's let's take one of our investor club opportunities from last year, uh, Sedona Ranch, for example. Uh, if you had invested in this property, uh, and if you invested a hundred thousand dollars in that property, uh, you know we did a cost segregation analysis, we did bonus depreciation. All of our investors received a K one for about a hundred for about hundred and six percent. In other words, if you invested a hundred thousand dollars in that property, you would have gotten a uh, loss of a hundred and six thousand. So more than your actual investment. Not a bad deal, right? Now, eventually, we will sell this property and limited partners will be on the hook for long-term capital gains and then depreciation recapture. Now, the thing about depreciation recapture is even in the worst case scenario, it's not that bad, right? Because what you're able to do is on recapture your tax on a 25% tax rate. Now, if you were using income that was going to be taxed at ordinary income rates of, and you're a high wage earner, you're paying 40, you know, 40%, whatever, uh, you're paying and recapture, you're paying 25% on that instead of the 40%. So in and of itself, it's already a good deal, but it's even better if you have a bunch of other losses waiting in the wings from other syndications you've invested in because then you offset the recapture and the long-term capital gains and you go into the next hamster wheel. And we have lots of people using this strategy in an investor club. And again, this is what we call uh, the golden hamster wheel. So in this scenario, uh, what if you wanted to get off of that wheel for some reason, right? Well, I should point out, you know, again, you could just sell and then take profits and then, you know, pay the tax. That's one option. Another uh, another thing is you could just, you know, if you happen to die during the, the holding, although you don't want to plan that necessarily, but say you died during the holding of this, you know, there is uh, something called a Section 754 that most partnerships have that will allow the cost basis of your uh, heirs to actually, um, you know, go back to 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 baseline so that they wouldn't have to pay recapture. So that's another possibility. But say, for example, now you're living and you don't want to buy anything more and you don't want to do any more syndications. Another option might be, okay, well, let's buy 
uh, or let's, you know, once we sell it, sell and we get some profits, let's buy some of those triple net Walgreens like those 1031 guys did. And now you can do a cost segregation analysis on those, you know, triple net properties that don't require any management. Hold on to those assets until you die. And then, of course, now you've got the uh, the advantage of the buy, borrow, die thing again, right? So that's one of your, you know, that's certainly one of the ways you can get off. Uh, if you really don't want to buy those properties, maybe you buy them and then, you know, you 1031 exchange into something called a Delaware Statutory Trust. And that's sort of like a syndication um, for 1031 exchanges uh, that buy real estate and give you the same, you know, benefits. But, you know, frankly, I have yet to find one of these funds that looks, you know, any worth anything uh, <laughs> worth investing in. Um, but, you know, listen, I have also haven't looked at them very seriously because the concept of just kind of, you know, putting something in a fund uh, and, and, and not trying to grow it is not really appealing to me right now. So maybe there's some other options. Anyway, Suffice it to say, when you get to that point, there are lots of options, and the reality is that the more money you have, uh, the greater options uh, there will be. Uh, in the meantime, I would just say, hey, man, ride that hamster wheel. Well, I don't know about you, but I think I have had enough of the uh, uh, of answering questions this for this episode. So what I am going to do is finish off the Ask Buck uh, questions from all of those that were sitting back from episode 200 and I guess even Christmas and finish them off in the next episode. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I do want to remind you before we go, if you are into this stuff, if you like these kinds of conversations, the place for you to go would be to join Wealth Formula Network. If you go to wealthformularoadmap.com, you'll see a cheesy sales page for a course. Now, I didn't design that. Somebody else designed it. And suffice it to say, it's a great course, though. There's a lot of really smart people on there. Tom Wheelwright, Ken McElroy, uh, lots of information. But what the real value of this is, is the community that we have that goes along with the course, which is Wealth Formula Network. And we stay in touch together on the Facebook group. We stay in touch on our portal and also through our bi-weekly Zoom uh, video conferencing calls where we look each other in the eye, ask each other questions. And these conversations that we have on these uh, Ask Buck shows, this is exactly what we do every week. So if it's of interest to you, if your you know, wife or your family and your kids and your neighbors, nobody wants to talk to you about personal finance, but you like the stuff, it might be a good place for you to check out. Uh, it is a phenomenal mastermind. Everybody who's in it, I got to tell you, they just love it. You've, you've had some of the people who are in that group uh, on the show as list, as guests, even Ian Kurth, and we've had uh, uh, some others as well. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast, and we will be back next week uh, next episode with the final cut of Ask Buck. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.
Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.